and welcome to Crop It Like It's Hot, the arable podcast hosted by me, Alice Dyer, and brought to you by the Crop Tech Show, Arable Farming Magazine, and sponsored by Yara, the crop nutrition company. Before we get started on today's episode, don't forget if you're on the basis register, you can claim one CPD point for tuning in by emailing the name of the podcast and your account number to cpd at basis-reg.co.uk. So today we're going to be talking about what feels like the buzzword at the moment and that is regenerative agriculture. So we've covered a few of these principles before on the podcast so we're not really going to talk so much about the hows today but more the whys. For those of you who don't know the generally accepted principles of regen ag in arable scenarios are keeping the ground covered for as much of the year as possible with living roots keeping mechanical soil disturbance to a minimum, increasing plant diversity both within crops and within the whole rotation, and integrating livestock. So soil here is the main beneficiary, but experts say that as the health of the soil improves, this leads to the whole landscape regenerating too. I'm Natalie Wood, Yara's country arable agronomist, and I'm here to remind you about fertiliser quality characteristics. The three main things you need in a good quality fertiliser are a high strength score, meaning it can be spread over larger bout widths, uniformity of size and shape of the particles for even spreading and therefore even crops, and finally, bulk density. Think ping pong ball versus golf ball. The heavier, denser particles will spread further and be less affected by wind. Yarabella Axan has all these qualities and more. Visit our website yara.co.uk for more information. Now, my first guest today is very knowledgeable in this field and he's probably best known for his work in Regen Ag and for pioneering the Groundswell event which has just taken place. So here I have Hertfordshire mixed farmer John Cherry. Hi John, great to have you on here. Excellent. No, no, thanks for asking. I'm delighted to be on. Brill. So, John, you're kind of one of um, the UK's trailblazers when it comes to Regen Ag, so I'd love to know why, when and where did this all begin for you? Well, I mean, you kind of, you say I'm a trailblazer. I mean, I, it was, I've always been kind of vaguely interested, well, obviously quite interested in the soil because that's what farmers work with. But it was, and I, but I, I was disappointed that, our soils were getting worse and worse the longer we farmed, and I thought there wasn't anything we could do, but I thought that was just what farming was about. So it was terribly exciting to go around visiting farmers who were, who'd worked out a, a, a better way of doing it. Um, so, you know, we'd go and see people like Tony Reynolds and in Lincolnshire and Simon Carl and the Essex Coast and things, and they were, Simon Charles, they were, these guys were farming without moving the soil at all, no-till farming. It's it, fantastically exciting. So we we leapt on and, and, and had a go ourselves. And it um, and it was just, it was just so pleasing, so satisfactory how well it worked. I couldn't believe everybody wasn't doing it. So, we, you know, we, we, um, we were, we were, well, we basically were so pleased by the effect it had on our, our farm. We've, we thought we ought to be promoting this, which is why we started doing the show. 
Yeah, and that's well. You just said it's a sellout this year, so that's excellent. And we're um, we're seeing this real growing interest now in soil health and kind of regen ag principles. Um, so, how do you feel about that? You must be quite excited by that. No, I mean, <laughs> no, I mean it's, it's, it's very exciting. I mean, I, I I get slightly kind of overexcited and evangelical about it because I, I I genuinely think that farmers. Um, have such an important part to play in, in, in sorting out so many of the world's problems. And um, and we've been demonised for, you know, for, for, for screwing things up and using horrible poisons and, and, and you know, polluting everything and all the rest of it. And, and suddenly here's a, here's a way of farming which either feeds people with healthy food, which makes them you know, there's just, you know, half the hospitals in the country could shut down if, if, if people ate properly. And, uh, you know, so we, we produce good food, but also the, the potential for soil to sequester carbon in sucking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and sticking it in the soil by having living living roots and not disturbing the soil too much is, um, is you know, it's... It, 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 it's terribly important for for all of us and for the climate and, and everything. So it's um yeah I mean I'm thrilled to bits, but also you know hopeful that the future is a is going to be is going to be rosy rather than you know as as uh, as grim as it could be if some of the worst predictions about um, climate change and things come to pass. And for someone who's feeling you know really inspired by this maybe they've been to groundswell this year what would your advice be on getting started um in you know making these changes to the way that they farm it's just well it's just it's it's have a go you know have a go even if it's 10 percent of your land if you just if you if you experiment with it it's it's just it's it's eye-opening just how, how how well the land will respond but um, and also just talk to as many people as you can. That's the nice thing about Brownsville. There's a yeah. A, it's a really friendly atmosphere, and, and and there's just lots of enthusiastic people there. And you just talk to people while you're queuing for a burger, and you you know you, you, that's that's a you know as, as good as it gets really. Just a you know happy happy circumstance with all these people in a field at the same time. Uh, yeah, and you know, and go and visit their farms if you can, and because just see what other people do. Because it's the exciting thing, the other exciting thing about the whole regenerative agriculture thing for me is it's a farmer-led revolution. It's a proper revolution coming from the bottom up. Yeah. And there aren't, you know, it's not the universities telling us how to do it, or the extension officers, or the you know, ADAS or whoever. They're all learning from the farmers who are doing all these exciting exciting things on their farms and uh, not the other way around so it's um um yeah and on your kind of journey are there any challenges that you've had to overcome or you know particular lessons that you've learned that might help somebody else um yes unfortunately um it's friday afternoon and i've forgotten them all <laughs> someone asked me this last week and i and i, and I sort of sat scratching my head and so i ought to have an answer off that because we've we've made a lot of cock-ups and um and the, you know it's 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 by it's by your mistakes that you learn the most really well as long as you learn from them but i you know we we certainly have made um 
you know, we, we've gone wrong in, in different things and, and to trying to squeeze too many cereal crops into rotation or whatever. I mean, I think cover crops are, are terribly, a, a fantastic tool for, you know, making the soil better. And, and if you can, you know, you don't want to keep your, don't want to have bare land at any time. One of the mistakes we made this winter was spraying off a, a field ready to drill it and then, uh, and then the weather changed and we never did get back to drill it and the, and the soil was bare all winter and it was it was really quite it you know it, it, it didn't when we drilled it in the spring it, it, it wasn't happy and the, still, the crop still looks a bit rubbish if we'd had a cover crop over winter it'd have been a different game altogether so i mean it's that kind of thing it's just keeping your land covered you know you've got to really look after your soil it, it, it's but it's so worth it the soil really responds to being looked after and it, you get your worms and everything. You get all these all these little soil creatures working working for you for nothing. It's a it's a wonderful feeling. Yeah, I can imagine. And sort of looking to the future a bit, what what kind of ambitions have you got for the farm and probably for Groundswell as well? Um, oh, I don't know ambition. Well, I don't, the trouble is, it's it, you know, someone said that one of our speakers a couple of years ago, you know, they said, where do you think you're going to be in ten years' time? He said, well, if you'd you know, 10 years ago, if you'd asked me that question, when I first started no-till farming, I thought, well, I'll be no-till farming. But <laughs> he said that, and, and it, you know, because he, he was so excited about just no-tilling. But actually, he said it's a bit like opening a opening a door to a magical kingdom. It, 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 it's, it's like, you know, there's so much, there's so much potential in, in all sorts of directions. And you've absolutely no idea where it's going to take you. It's just a very exciting journey you're embarking on so i i, I haven't i mean I've, i'm hoping you know every year on our farm we we cut our nitrogen the amount of nitrogen we're using on on our crops and and the and the, and the yield stays much the same it's not you know the, the, the soil's getting more fertile and this year we managed to avoid using any fungicides on on most of our weeds and they just look fantastic and we've we've obviously done other things we've been using kind of biological brews and things like that to, to try and keep 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 them healthy and keep the keep the beneficial fungi going and all the rest of it but it's just it's just very exciting you know yeah, by using some probiotic things rather than antibiotic things you know things which are for life rather than against life and it's 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 it, it feels it feels good but no who knows where we're going to be i mean i hope in in you know we'll, we'll get to a stage of being able to farm very you know productively with with the minimal number of inputs I mean, it's jolly bad luck on all the people who supply inputs but you know frankly we as farmers we've got to find a way of doing this for our own benefit but also for the benefit of the planet you know we can't we, we're using a very energy intensive capital intensive method of farming to feed the world and and, and you know that things are going to start running out soon you know the oil and gas and and uh, in all the rest of it are required to make nitrogen fertilizer we need to find a better way of doing things yeah so uh, yeah those are those are ambitions but in terms of where we go with groundswell i don't know because it's one of the nice things about the size of it at the moment it's like a kind of boutique yeah. festival rather than glastonbury you know it's not a two hundred thousand people in a field yeah it's it's a it's a it's a manageable number of people and it's kind of it, it worked very well so you know maybe we'll you know just have lots of little ground ground swells all over the country and so you, you know so 
people can focus on on their area and their climate and their soil types and ways of farming. Yeah. Have a Scottish one, a Welsh one, a Northern English one, or whatever. And uh, yeah, because it, you know we're certainly finding there's so many more people are excited about this work approaching the thing and not just farmers as well all sorts of other you know food food processes and all the rest of it you know they all want to get hold of this you know the, the, their customers are excited about regeneratively produced food yeah and they you know want to want to you know, come and talk to the farmers and this kind of thing so i think there's a yeah i think there's a it, all, all sorts of possibilities but who knows who knows where we're going to be yeah, I think you're right in that it's not just farmers that are catching on to the kind of regen ag scene. There's a lot of consumers that are at the same time. Excellent. Well, it's been great to have you. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for asking us. It's been a pleasure chatting to you. Now, with that consumer interest still in mind and looking to the business side of things, I'm pleased to have my next guest here, Jonathan Armitage, Head of Farming at Stratton Parker, who have just released a guide on key considerations for farming businesses exploring regenerative agriculture methods. Hi, Jonathan. Hello, Alice. Hi. Great to have you on. Thank you. The name of this podcast is Regenerative Agriculture, Fad or the Future. So I wanted to ask you, looking at kind of policy and the way consumers are um, sort of leaning towards and ag chem regulations and all these various different things, do you think that um, moving towards these more regenerative agricultural practices will become more of a need to do rather than a nice to do or will these kind of high input high output arable enterprises still have a place uh, yeah it's a really interesting question um and I, I suppose taking a step back um from it a little bit the reason you know that we're all interested in these practices uh, is that there's a realization that much of the world's agricultural land is becoming degraded and we in the UK have a tendency to think that this is about the Amazon rainforest or desertification or the US dust bowls and so on. Um, closer to home, I think we just, you know, we do, at least initially at the outset, need to consider if it's necessary anyway for the continuing functioning of my own farming system on my farm, so to speak. So from, from a genuine sustainability point of view. So I, I suppose in that context, it, it might be a need to do. Mm. Yeah, you talked about uh, agrochemical regulations and and so on. We all know that chemical-based agronomy is becoming increasingly challenged. Um, for instance, heavy land farmers are, you know, are are they losing this battle against black grass on on, on heavy land, such that we need to adopt you know, more impactful cultural methods uh, like long-term lays and so on. Uh, so again, you know, even from that basis, it might be a need to do. I think your comment about consumer beliefs and uh, what consumers are thinking is is a really interesting one. You know, major global buyers of agricultural products are all out there declaring their targets for sustainability, and those you know those targets all include sourcing products only from farmers who are adopting regenerative practices, and. McCain's obviously a week or two ago came out and they were the latest to declare that this was their goal. Um, yeah. PepsiCo have been doing that across the 
across the world uh, for a little while. They, they, that, that's one of their goals too. And um, yeah, it's really what you're alluding to is that you know, this, of course, means that farmers may find that they are required to adopt those practices uh, in order to meet the protocols of their of their customers. Yeah. And the other thing that we come across um, increasingly is that investors uh, of land, I suppose it's a bit like the the buyers of agricultural produce, the investors in land increasingly want to make regenerative agriculture part of their land investment goals. Um, and we've seen, you know, different forms of finance coming to farms in different in different ways, green bonds and so on. And you know, those are all likely to want an engagement from farming operators in regenerative agriculture. I mean, you did ask whether high input, high output still has a place. Mm. Um, I, I think the answer to that is yes. But I think what is most important is ensuring the efficient use of inputs. Yeah. That's where we that's where we're all sort of going and we need to be a bit more analytical about it in order to, you know, identify where inputs are best placed. Um, and that's of course the whole purpose of precision farming techniques, you know, assessing plant and crop conditions so that inputs are used most productively. I mean after all from a production perspective, what we're interested in is minimizing the use of inputs per unit of production, so per tonne of wheat or litre of milk or kilo of beef. Yeah. And so on. And and I think we need to move increasingly away from those, you know, average at the you know, really easy average applications across wide areas, which which does inevitably lead to some areas of high input, low output. Yeah. Farming. And looking to the future a bit now and what we know about Elm so far, which admittedly isn't a huge amount, do you think that it's going to go far enough in its support for land managers that are moving to this type of farming? Well, I suppose that remains to be seen. Um, Yeah. (laughs) But regenerative farming is a collective term for a whole range of staff, a whole range of farming practices. So... Yeah, I'm definitely not expecting a specific regenerative farming payment no. um, as, as such. But uh, there are already a number of options available in the existing stewardship schemes and so on for practices that are helpful in a regenerative farming system, so legume fallows and cover crops and herbal lays and so on, and some help with some of the capital things that might go with that, like fencing and water supplies and so on. So a lot of that is is there already. Um, It's quite a complex, uh, it's quite a complex picture. Um, So it definitely requires some really careful navigation through those options. And of course, the real key to this when it comes to ELMS is whether the eventual payment rates are going to make sense and allow for some widespread adoption. But it's going to be really interesting to see how those options or how the options that are available match match the protocols that are independently constructed by by the buyers of some of our products that we were just talking about and whether um, it makes a nice match for the schemes that are available to be used to offset some of those and associated costs. Mm. And we've talked about this a bit in the past on a previous podcast, but um, there's also capital grants available. Yeah, there are cap- capital grants um, mm. grants available for a whole wide range of um, of items. So yes, specifically drills is, is, is one of those is one of those things. Um, so 
for those people who are committed to making this change, those are really useful um, grants to take to take advantage of. Uh, it's not a it's not support of regenerative farming per se mm. in a holistic sort of way, but it, but used in conjunction with, as you just said, with stewardship scheme options and um, different farming techniques with different sets of inputs. It does it does change the financial picture on the farm quite substantially, actually. Um, so it does need some really really careful careful thought. Yeah. And we just heard from John about um, his tips on getting started. So what, what advice would you give to farmers? The very first thing you should do is ask yourself why. What are, what are my objectives from this? Am I, am I trying to reduce my costs? Am I trying to improve margins? Am I trying to restore some damaged land? Um, is there an ag- agronomic issue I'm trying to address? Am I trying to sequester carbon? Uh, am I doing it because McCain's have told me I've got to? Um, and, and all of those might require a different, uh, a different approach. Once you've come to the conclusion of why it is you want to carry something, carry out, um, or adopt regenerative agricultural practices, then you can start to um, gather the information and the sorts of things that other people have talked about. That sounds like very good advice. Thanks very much, Jonathan. Are you looking for a winter wheat with an excellent agronomic package, outstanding grain quality and end market potential? Then set your sights on LG Astronomer from Limagrain UK. LG Astronomer scores 7.4 for Septoria, 9 for yellow and brown rust, is stiff strawed and has OWBM resistance. With a solid yield and specific weight of 77.8, LG Astronomer ticks all boxes for on-farm security and performance. It's a Group 3 wheat that's approved for distilling and biscuit making. LG Astronomer Winter Wheat, the agronomics and quality you've been looking for. Now, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, it's really soil health that underpins all the principles of Regen Ag. So my next guest is going to break this down for us and help us to understand what past and current practices are doing to the health of our soils. I've got Professor Andrew Neal, who is a research scientist in soil microbiology at Rothamsted Research here. Hi, Andrew. Hello, Alice. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Very well. Good. Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Good. So, Andy, we're not so much going to talk about um, the hows of Regen Ag today, but more the whys. And Regen Ag principally starts with soil health. So, my first question, which might be a little bit contentious, is... Do you think that we, as in farmers, understand soil biology? And also, I guess, you as researchers? Yeah, so that, that, is, a, that is a very interesting question, because I think there are, there are numbers of ways to answer that, really. And then the reason for that is that in the last, I suppose, 10, 15 years, there's been a revolution in the way we, we think about soil, particularly soil microbiology. Uh, and that, that revolution has come about with the the large capability for sequencing genomes, which you know, I expect people have heard about personalized medicine based upon sequencing of their genome. But we can also now sequence nucleic acids from soil. So whereas before, and this is where the revolutions come out, before this 
ability to sequence and look at the genetic complement of soils, we had to rely pretty much either on organisms we could see. So your listeners will probably be very familiar with the use of earthworms as a measure of soil health. Yeah. Um, but when it came down to microbiology, everything we knew was really based upon what we could grow from soil. And growing individual microbes from soil is very challenging. Estimates suggest that we're, even now, only capable of growing perhaps 1% or a fraction of 1% of what is actually living in the soil. So okay. to say, do we understand? No, I don't think even scientists at the moment understand the true complexity of soil microbiology or soil biology, which of course then makes it very difficult for farmers, given the limited amount of knowledge that scientists can provide, yeah. makes it very difficult for farmers to then really get a grip on what's going on in their soils. But as I say, you know, there are some very good indicators such as earthworms, but when we come to think about the sort of metabolic processes and what's driving nitrous oxide emissions or methane emissions from soil, we're really only just starting to understand that. And I think in the next 10 years, there will be a, a, a blossoming of knowledge and understanding about how those processes can be manipulated. So right now, we're scratching the surface. And I think um, we're all in the same boat. Okay. And from a kind of farmer perspective, why is soil biology so important? What What is its function in sort of crop production scenarios? So... There are so many microbes in soil that their metabolic processes really dominate what's going on. And particularly from a food production perspective, one of the greatest influences that microbes have is through the way they interact with nitrogen in the soil. So we know that the efficiency of adding ammonium nitrate fertilized to soil can be pretty low can be somewhere between about 40 and 80 percent depending upon how you're managing your soils but typically you know it's 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 down in the sort of 50 percent efficiency which means that only about half of added ammonium nitrate fertilizer ever makes it to a plant right so so that's a, that's a lot of expense yeah. <laughs> and a lot of wastage now a lot of that wastage is because microbes are very efficient at scavenging ammonium or nitrate uh, that goes into soil and we're now starting to realize that actually the the micro environments in soil particularly those that control the movement of oxygen through the system can significantly change the way the whole microbial com uh, community respi respires and metabolizes so when we talk about soil health i mean when i think of soil health it's about providing the right sort of environment in soil so that the sort of microbial metabolism that we want, which is what assimilates carbon in soil and stores carbon, and the flip side, it doesn't respire on nitrate and drive off nitrous oxide from the system, meaning it goes straight to the atmosphere and completely misses out the plant. That's the sort of good soil health that, that benefits food productivity and the efficient use of, of, of fertilizers, expensive fertilizers. So, you know, and the flip side of that is you're not only uh, spending less money and getting more nitrogen to your plants in a good, healthy system, 
also you're minimizing the losses of potent greenhouse gases like nitrous oxide. So this, this whole soil health thing really boils down to the ability to create a nice oxygenated, open, uh, highly poor connected environment in soil where microbes can respire aerobically rather than anaerobically. And I guess that nitrogen efficiency is just going to become more and more important as we go on. Exactly. And, it's, you know, you minim- if you can minimise the amount of... I mean, I, I don't think anyone is reasonably saying that we will ever not be able to use inorganic fertilisers mm. to support our fertility. But there are certainly ways that we can reduce the amount we use, and that comes by improving the efficiency of the soil systems that we manage. So do you just using less and less, um, uh, you know, oil based uh, energy and products to, 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 to keep the fertility of soil high. Okay, and we know that um, cultivations and perhaps, you know, synthetic inputs like nitrogen aren't that good for soil health. But to what extent because you've done a few studies on this, haven't you? Yes, we've, 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 so Rothenstutz is very lucky in the sense that it has a number of long-term experiments in the field that allow us to, to really get to grips with the long-term implications for uh, various management approaches to soil. Those experiments are showing us a number of things, and, and that, that tillage and inorganic fertiliser usage is affecting microbial communities at a variety of different levels. So, for instance, the, the, the physical uh, issues associated with tillage, and this is this is well known, um, break up mycorrhizal fungal hyphal networks. So, there is there's physical damage that happens in in, in soil when it's ploughed, of course, and that's been well known. You've been studying mycorrhizal associations uh, with plant roots for a long period of time. But we're also now able to show that by limiting the diet, so I'd spend a lot of my time thinking about the diet that, that we put into our soil. If you think of a, if you think of a pasture or an unmanaged system as having a very rich, diverse diet of inputs, lots of different plant species, um, lots of different uh, chemical inputs into the organic chemical inputs into those soils. We know that um, in a pasture with that very diverse diet, most of the fungi uh, make a living off the dead plant material or, as I was just saying, make these ectomycorrhizal associations with living plants. When you start to reduce that diversity of diet, so when you when you shift from a pasture system to a very monotonous winter wheat diet, which is which is the diet that we're one of the diets we've been looking at at, at Rothamsted, mm. we see that because of that nutritional monotonousness, fungi start or start to adapt or rather different fungi move in is probably the best way to say it, and they make a living in different ways, particularly by be, being pathogenic. So as you limit the plant diet or plant input you start to see a greater number of pathogenic fungi that are pathogenic on plants insects and lichens so from a fungal point of view the you've got this physical disruption 
You've also got this change in diet that means a switch in the way the fungi that are there are making a living. And of course, actively managing a system to encourage pathogens into the system is not a particularly um, sensible uh, way to go when you're trying to grow crop plants. So we know that the diet that you put into your soil, and that effectively means the amount of organic matter that goes in, the more diverse that is, the more balanced and benign the fungal communities are in those soils. But we also know that from a carbon sequestration point of view, that tillage results in a lot of organic carbon losses from soil. And again, this is well known. People know that when you plough, there's this burst of carbon dioxide is released from soil. We're now starting to understand why that is. And at the moment, what we think is that carbon is effectively sequestered in soil once once that very rich diet I was just talking about is broken down into very small molecules. You know, the smallest molecules that you can generate from from cellulose, let's say. Those molecules become associated with clay, clay particles and these generally start then acting as glue to stick soil particles together. And that's, that's the creation of this lovely tilth that everyone is familiar with, the lovely soil texture, that, um, sorry, soil uh, structure that allows a good, healthy system. Now, when we till... Uh, well, I should say, once that structure is formed, the microbes are then unable to get access to that carbon. And so it, rather than being mineralized and lost from the soil, it becomes sequestered, uh, effectively locked away so microbes can't get at it anymore. Mm-hmm. Now, when you till, you break down that structure and a lot of that hidden away carbon becomes available again. And so as soon as you till and you break that structure, microbial metabolism takes over again and that extra pulse of carbon dioxide is lost from soil. So the physical the physical breaking down of these physical structures accelerates and exacerbates carbon dioxide lost from soil. And so what you're getting in tilled systems, especially arable systems, which already have a very simple, monotonous diet, is there's less carbon going in. It's, a, it's less diverse, so you're getting this switch in the community and the way it makes its living. Plus, when you're tilling, you're re-exposing what has been sequestered to more microbial activity. And so you get these pulses of carbon dioxide every time you, you till. And gradually, over long periods of time, the carbon becomes less and less abundant in the soil. So bearing all that in mind... And the fact that realistically, we're probably not going to move away from these monotonous wheat diets unless we're intercropping or whatever. How exactly. how can we feed the soil biology and give it, you know, a healthier diet? And also, is there anything else we can do to promote soil biology um, and help it build up populations? All the evidence that, that's coming out of our long-term experiments at the moment is that Organic carbon is really the driver of this. So you're right, you can increase the diversity of the diet going into arable soils by growing cover crops, um, by having a more diverse rotation in that soil, or by using other sort of inorganic, sorry, organic inputs. So uh, farmyard manure, of course, is the classic. But nowadays, we also have digestates, we have composts. So the 
concept of moving away from that very rigid, regular and monotonous wheat diet towards something that is more diverse will always not only sequester more carbon and create this better structure that allows microbes to respire aerobically and assimilate and store carbon in the soil. But it also, we, we know now that the microbes in soil that have a more diverse diet actually contain more genes on their genome. So are collectively as a community holding more genetic information, which is probably the most basic measure of biodiversity that we have. So the carbon diet is really important for controlling this whole concept of soil health. And it does that in a number of different ways, not only the species and the type of organisms that are there, but the way they make a living, the way they interact with crop plants, and also the amount of genetic information that is stored in the community as a whole. So a number of levels of different organisation, biological organisation are affected by this diet. Okay, and this is the final question and it's really broad and it's going to be dependent on a lot of things. But how long does it take for um, soil biology to sort of build up? Would it be years, decades, centuries? So it's difficult to answer those questions at the moment. Typical scientists, we've answered the easy questions first, right? We've answered... (laughs) What happens if you destroy the soil? <laughs> what happens if you if you um, if you go go from a pasture management to arable, or, or in some cases we've got some soils that have been completely starved of any plant inputs for over fifty years, and they they sort of allow us to understand how far you can push a soil before it breaks. What we haven't done yet, we've spent less time looking at how you can build that up, because. Um, partly because those experiments are much difficult, much more difficult to find. But what we do know is that if you start from a, so we have a board bork is the longest uh, experiment that we have at, at Harpenden. Over 170 years ago now, soil that had originally been managed as permanent wheat was, was effectively abandoned and allowed to turn back to, to grazed pasture and some of it actually to woodland. If you look at how soil organic carbon has accumulated in those soils, in the very first 20 years, it accumulated rather rapidly. And so there were big changes immediately after stopping plowing and, agri- and arable management. But that rate has begun to, to gradually slow and slow and slow. And so now it's accumulating carbon at a very slow rate. So to some extent, the time frame that is required to go from a a sort of low carbon, uh, highly managed soil to one that is rich in carbon can take well over a hundred years. And it's probably likely that the microbial community and the, the larger organisms in soil respond on similar timeframes in the sense that you only get the, the sort of the final community structure once organic carbon has ceased to accumulate in those soils. So. The, uh, the question, I think, or sorry, the answer is probably not uh, quite as exact as you were hoping for, largely <laughs> because we don't, have, we don't have that sort of data yet. But we do have ideas about how organic carbon changes in soil. And that, like I say, suggests a very long time frame that, over which soils change. 
Yeah. And I have to say, it, it, organic carbon is a bit like a reputation, right? It's very quick to lose, but very slow to get back. <laughs> um, and and so we, you know, we see that in 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 our soils at Rothamsted, that you can lose organic carbon very quickly by by going to a tilling regime. Yeah. But then, if you stop tilling, getting that carbon back to where you know the, the maximum soil holding potential for carbon can take well over a century. Right. Okay. But the fact that you see sort of accelerated improvement within the first 20 years that's quite promising oh yes yes you can you can get in, in the first few years you get you get a rapid change the question is um you know when we think now about regenerative agriculture that total regeneration takes much longer than that first 20 years yeah although you're right and in, in a in a farmer's lifetime there should be appreciable changes and appreciable improvements but they i think also need to think about the longer term what i'm doing now today is going to benefit my children or whoever inherits this land after me um as much as it's benefiting me now and, and that in fact they will probably see even greater improvements so it's you're sort of if you make that decision now you're 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 making it based upon a very long-term view and the understanding that it will improve it just needs to be continued it's yeah. not something you can start and stop and then start again yeah you know, i think it's it's in for the long it's in for the long term if you if you make that sort of decision yeah that's really interesting and i feel like i've learned an awful lot from this conversation so it was great to chat thank you andy it was great to chat and i'm very pleased that you have some interest in what we're doing that's great And now for my final guest today, Gloucestershire farmer Ed Horton. Since returning to his family farm, Ed has adopted what he describes as hybrid farming across the 3,000 hectare enterprise, which is both conventional and organic. This means that management principles across the system remain the same and reaching for a chemical only happens when and where it is absolutely needed, he says. Hi, Ed. Hi, Alan. How are you doing? Hi, very good. Thanks. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks. Nice to have you on here today. Um, so, around twenty percent of your farm is organic. So, are there any lessons that you've learned on that side of things that you've been able to bring over to the conventional enterprise? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the management management techniques that you have to use in organic because they're all you have. The same, exactly the same principles for. You know, controlling weeds and disease in organic, basically that's exactly how we manage the conventional. I just have the backup of a break glass or emergency fungicide if it all gets a bit much. Yeah. Whereas I don't have that in the organic and we just have to live with it. So a lot of the management is, is very similar. Um, you know, on, on, on a, the, the big picture, it is all very similarly managed as a whole, you know, with inter-row hoeing and very late drilling and how we choose our varieties. Um, down, you know, we choose varieties for, for, for disease resistance over anything else because our ground doesn't yield very well at the best of times <laughs> up okay. here. Our thin limestone brash is yield limited, full stop. I could grow the best variety in the world, but um, we don't have the soil and seemingly we don't get the rain these days. When when did you start this new approach to managing the conventional farm and why did you want to change what you were doing? Um, probably started seven years ago and it started with looking at, at 
just saving, saving costs, basically, is where it came from, is that, you know, grain prices were in a, a bit of a middling to low average, you know, and we, we don't historically get big yields up here. And so our input costs have to be close. Yeah, we have to keep a very close eye on them because we don't, we can't sort of go, oh, well, it's fine. You know, it might do a pump it might do 12 pump packs. I mean, our, our average yields are not great. So with input costs going up, we just have to look at some ways of, you know, trying to keep a lid on them or actually remove some of those input costs out of it that weren't going to have too big an impact on yield. And a lot of that was based around looking at soil health and soil quality. So, you know, removing the need to drag a cultivator up and down a field. Actually, the, 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 the start point was like growing cover crops really for to allow direct drilling to happen more regularly, um, and also to have a bit more grazing for sheep, so that we could, you know, we were still getting something beneficial commercially out of it, um, you know, that we could graze sheep on, and then sort of from there, it's just sort of been a natural progression to that works, and we had healthier soil, to then like removing seed dressings because I got happier, healthier soil. Why do we want to wrap a seed in a fungicide that's going to try and kill all the biology I've just been trying to create? Um, and you know, and then moving forward from there, going well, actually, we've got everything in good nick, and and we can start to look at removing removing herbicides from a cost and a soil health point of view, and go to into row hoeing, where we can be incredibly selective about where we put the hoe and where we don't where we don't need to put the hoe, rather than sort of going. Well, we've drilled 500 acres a week. We'll, we'll, we'll cover it all with pre-emergence chemical because that's our best weed control. But you never know if you needed it because, if, you know, if you put it on and it works really well, it looks like you never needed to put a pre-emergence on. If you didn't put it on and you stand in the middle of the summer and go, I've got a mass of black grass, yeah. your, your options are very limited without without looking at it in the slightly lesser way that we did, going, well, actually, I'd rather black grass came up in December because then I know it's there and we can map it and we can be ready to hoe it. As soon as we, as soon as we can travel to remove it mechanically. Yeah, and obviously you just said that you um, started this because of cost savings. So, are you able to put a number on how much you have saved cost-wise and how gross margins have improved? Um, yeah, I mean our our input, our sort of variable costs if you look at it on like a gross margin point of view, mm. we have managed, we've managed to save, we, we now probably say it's somewhere between, year depending, because obviously, you know, high disease pressure years, grazing winter cereals for sheep to remove disease works well in the, in the early spring. We still have to try and fight septoria and a big crop of wheat, you know, yeah. come May. So in a year, year, depending on year and disease, we, we now save somewhere in the region between 50 and 60 percent of our variable costs have been removed you know our, our seed is, is cheaper because we just clean it like clean it clean it from a physical point of view and put some trace elements on so you know we're not spending 150 quid a ton on a fungicidal seed dressing so that suddenly means that you know seed costs are suddenly quite, quite a lot lower than they than they were and then you know you remove pre-emergent chemicals so that is somewhere in the region of you know, a, a punchy pre-emergent herbicide regime can be up, up to, you know, 70, 80 quid a, a hectare. And then if you're doing post-emergence after that, you can easily hit 120 quid a hectare on, on herbicide. Um, you know, as a variable cost, without in the cost of a sprayer and a man driving it. So if we can take those out and go, if we spend half of that by a hoe going up and down a field twice, 
foreign acting herbicides to it, which it's all very vague about what they actually do to soil biology. And I was really looked at it, but I think I think the general consensus would be if you're applying a chemical to a soil, it's probably going to have more of a detrimental impact than a beneficial one. Because uh, if it was beneficial, it would have been proven by now because they'd have been able to market it. Has this um, reduced your yield at all, or I, I'm just thinking I'm just grazing saying... with grazing with sheep yeah. and inter Ohio, all these things could you know, potentially take a bit of yield? They, yeah, potentially they can, and it's about managing managing the grazing and the hoeing very carefully when we do it. We, I would say, if you looked at it on average, we're not actually very far off where we used to be, but what we have found is that in a bad year like last year, we don't get the yield penalty that we maybe would have done. Um, and we don't get the penalty on the fact that we planned and spent to grow maybe an eight-ton crop and only got a five-ton because we hadn't applied anything. And when it dried up last spring, well, we just won't. The potential is not there. We're just not going to feed it. And we still did five and a half ton, and we came out of it with a sensible gross margin. The flip side of that is, in a good year up here um, on the Cotswolds, we do miss the peak of how good it could possibly be. So we have removed some of the top end potential, but we've also moved some of the risk from the bottom end. So I yeah. think you averaged if you averaged it out, we're probably over ten years we'd probably be exactly the same. Just in a really good year we miss those those big high yields, but in a poor year we're not so worried about the bad ones. So it makes us slightly slightly less and you mentioned um, about varieties and and choosing varieties that you felt were suited to your system. What varieties are you growing at the moment or kind of leaning towards? Um, so we grow a quite a bit of X days, group yeah. two milling wheat, which is fantastic on it on on two fronts. It's very early growing and very competitive. So from a weed suppression point of view. Once we've been through it once with the hoe, it then tends to get on with it and, and shade everything else out, or at least keep everything else in the bottom of its canopy. Um, and it's great on a point of view. Um, it's a very clean variety. We grow X days organically um, for that exact reason. Um, and then we grow Federica, so that's a Hungarian milling wheat. Okay. Very, very early to harvest and very high protein which means that on our drought-prone Cotswold brash, it, it, try, it gets on with things quicker than, than most winter wheats do. And, okay, spring and last spring have been slight anomalies that it's been so dry early, but what it normally means is when conventional wheats in the middle of June here are stressed when they're trying to grain fill, the Frederica's that bit further ahead that it tends to, tends to set itself up before it gets stressed. Um, which allows us to not have quite such a yield penalty for a, for a dry summer. Um, so that's of a wheat, wheat and, and on a feed wheat front, we grow Costello. It's a good, solid variety. It does what it says on the tin. It's not the highest yielding by a long stretch, but it is short and stiff and never falls over um, and, and has very good disease resistance. And it, it does very well being grazed. We found actually that Costello quite enjoys being grazed out of all the varieties. Um, it always comes back incredibly well 
um, far quicker than most other varieties, having been having been grazed by sheep. Okay, and with the sheep grazing, it must be quite difficult with you know the wet winters we're getting and stuff to manage that. Sometimes is it? Um, yeah, it is. It does cause. It does take a lot more management time, but with direct drilling, that has helped. And our our, our predominant soil type is Cotswold Brash, which it is, yes, wet when it's raining, because you can't avoid that, but it is, we're free-draining, and very rarely, very rarely do we have to pull sheep off to stop them from making a mess. Um, Though sometimes we'll move them maybe a day earlier than I'd like to, if we get to, you know, they, we tried we try to make them not spend any more than a week in a field at a time. In an ideal world, it takes four to five days and then we move them. So, yeah, a big field okay. takes them a bit longer to graze it back. But and sometimes, you know, if they're getting to the end and it decides to rain, we might pull them out a day early from a grazing point of view because they might leave some greenery, but that's better than them just walking around for the last day, ploughing it slowly from top to bottom. Um, and, and we have the, the, the backup of if it gets really bad, we can take them off cereals and put them back onto turnips. This year, for instance, the first time we've ever really grazed oilseed rape on mass as a crop in the autumn, instead of using great reg and a fungicide mm. um, for fomer and light leaf spot control. And I've learned my lessons. We overgrazed it. I'm suffering for it now. Um, but I've learned my lesson because the rest of it is very happy. It's clean and we've got oilseed rape that we are yet to apply a fungicide to and that we haven't applied an insecticide to it's had one dose of herbicide to clear up some black grass and that, that, that's his input which is which is not bad going for oilseed rape normally you know it, it's not like i would ever say that you know oh well could, you know that my system that it's not like my my farming system could be rolled out as an idea for everyone because yeah lots of people don't, lots of people don't have access to livestock or actually their soils really wouldn't enjoy having sheep walking across them in January yeah. and then they'll form a cap and actually they'll do more harm than good. It just so happens that that fits really nicely, A, with our system of having sheep anyway, and B, on our, on our soil type. And it's, it's, it's very much, you know, my system works for me, but I'm, I'm, I'm very much not of the opinion that what I do is what everyone should be doing because it, 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 wouldn't, it doesn't and wouldn't work for lots of people out there. Yeah. What would you say is the biggest lesson you are learning during this transition or that you've learnt? Um, oh, I've learnt a lot. I think it's, it's learning to be more flexible. Is that I, in the back of my head still, I still have that thing of like, oh, it's fine, you can sort of forward plan, you know, I'm going to not film it, but I'm never going to eat too much anymore. All right, so it's... It, Flexible and att- flexibility and attention to detail is the fact that I crop walk now far more than I ever used to because we haven't applied a fungicide at two more, which basically gives me two weeks worth of breathing. I have to be better on it because I have to, to be more aware of what's going on because we have no chemical control. You know, we, we haven't applied any chemical control. It can be hot and dry and septoria can still appear and will come back to bite me in, 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 in a couple of weeks' time. And so... Yeah, I'd say that, that attention to detail and the things like the sheep grazing, you know, when it when we're at the end of a field of, of horses rape, we've learned, you need to check them twice, if not three times a day, because you can look at them at seven in the morning and go, yeah, they've got about another day. And actually by lunchtime, you're going, no, you know what, they've suddenly reached that stage where 
the hearts are visible on the plants. They've removed all the old green out. They need to go now. Yeah. Um, you know, whereas, of course, historically, we'd have gone out there with a grocery wagon and be done with it. And I wouldn't have had to have looked at a pile of sheep in the field every four hours. That, and, and, yeah, and, and the flexibility side of it is that my dropping plan, you know, changes honest to God on a, about a bi-weekly basis where, you know, we go, yeah, you know what, it's not right to put X in there, so we're going to put Y in instead. And, and being able to, to slightly move things around like that um, is, is key to it, that we're not fixated on, right, all of that has to go to wheat, no matter what, because that's what the plan says. It's going, it's not right, let's, let's do something different from a management point of view, because that's going to be best in the long term. Yeah. And with these crazy variable seasons that we keep seeing, it's just going to become more and more important, isn't it, to yeah, have that it, flexibility? It is, it is, yeah, it is that. Yeah, having that flexibility. I've learned that crops, you know, we live with broadleaf weeds in the bottom of our arable crops, groundsel and chickweed and things like that. It might look a little untidy from a conventional point of view, but it's saving me money and it's actually providing a beneficial habitat for insects and if you get insects into crops you then have bird life in a crop and therefore you're expanding biodiversity back into crops rather than sort of trying to push, push nature to the edge and go right well you can have 12 meters by that hedge and that's where you're living and the rest of it's going to be you know a monocrop is more sort of trying to get everything to work a bit better exactly it's a win-win isn't it win-win for everyone thanks ed that is so interesting hearing from you and i'm sure a lot of our listeners will have really enjoyed it as well so thank you And for those of you that want to hear more from Ed, I'm pleased to say that he'll be speaking at the Crop Tech Show this year in November. That's all we've got time for for today, I'm afraid, but I hope you enjoyed today's episode and all of our excellent speakers. A huge thank you for tuning in, as always, and I look forward to you joining me next month. Take care. Oh